Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today I'm joined once again by Dr. Herb Wood. Shortly before we began recording, I realized that Dr. Wood has been a chiropractor longer than I've been alive, and I'm not young. Combine that wealth of experience with the fact that he was trained in this great profession by Dr. Gonston himself. And it's no surprise that you're guaranteed to learn something every time you hear him speak. I don't think Dr. Wood knows this, but my adjusting was greatly influenced by him. I've often drawn a distinction between West Coast Gonstead and Midwest and Eastern Gonstead. It would be a long conversation for me to highlight the differences and why they exist, but suffice it to say, I've always been a bit of an anomaly as I'm a West Coast guy who adjusts like a Midwestern guy. The reason for this is because of Dr. Wood. I first met him in the late 90s, and the first time I ever saw him adjust, I knew that was the adjustment I wanted to emulate. If it wasn't for Dr. Wood being so kind as to travel out to California to teach us, there's no telling where I'd be today. All that to say, Dr. Wood is a legend, and he's also one of the original Gonstead protégés. So without any further ado, Dr. Herb Wood. You betcha. Always a pleasure. But today we're going to talk about x-rays, which is a little bit challenging when we're just talking in words and there's no, no uh, pictures. Um, but I think x-ray is, a, x-ray is a very important aspect. It often does get neglected. Uh, I'm actually, before we recorded this, I was working on putting together some stuff for a class that I teach at Life that's on x-ray line drawing. And I know when I was a student, I didn't have a class anything like that. So I had to learn all that stuff on the side. And so um, I realized that this is stuff that I don't think it's intuitive. I don't think you're going to just pick it up. Uh, and so once you get into trying to use it day to day, you start realizing that if you don't have a good system for doing this, it's either in, it might be inefficient, it might give you bad info. And so you really have to incorporate it into your whole system as kind of a mini system in itself. And so that's really what I want to talk with you about today is how we can help people to come up with a good system for doing x-rays in a way that gives them good information, um, doesn't waste anybody's time, but gives them uh, insight into what's really happening in their patient. Yeah, your, your comments are absolutely right. I, as I teach around the country uh, at the different schools, uh, boy, they just don't have hardly anything on uh, x-ray analysis. Uh, so I have a four-hour course uh, as part of my course um, uh, just on uh, line drawing and all the x-ray analysis. So works out good uh, for them because they, they're they just surprised that it, it involves so much. Yeah, and it's, uh, what I noticed from teaching the class is that there's a challenge in the first step is you got to learn to draw the lines correctly. Right. And then the second step is you got to learn how to interpret the lines correctly. And those are two completely separate things that have to coexist. And so as we teach it, we try to do both aspects of that. And what the students start to figure out pretty quickly is if the lines aren't drawn correctly, then part number two is never going to happen correctly. That getting those dots placed correctly, and even with digital, digital takes out the part where you have to draw the line nice and straight, but you still have to place your dots where you want them to be. And making getting a dot that's even a fraction of a millimeter off can completely change what the line says. That's right. Yeah, it, um, uh, when we go through our line analysis during the seminars, uh, we almost always find anywhere from one to uh, three or four millimeters difference in, in people's analysis measurements. And it's all because the pencil's too dull. Uh, we're not using a sharp pencil, so we have a real wide line. 
the dots are not placed uh, correctly is the other big thing. And um, so we need those we need those dots and the lines to be tangential to the to the um, uh, part of the bone that we're trying to uh, draw the line on. And if they're above it or below it, uh, then we're going to get we're going to get wrong wrong measurements. Yeah, I would never claim that I'm great at reading the entire aspect of an X-ray, but when it comes to certain landmarks, we get to be really good at finding those certain landmarks and knowing where they are. And I don't know if it necessarily translates into the other things we don't look at, but when it comes to those landmarks, you get pretty good at picking them out. And I noticed in my first couple years of practice, there were certain ones I really struggled with sometimes. Um, the S2 could become obscured where it's hard to find them for your sacral center line. Um, as I teach the students now, I tell them when you're looking for an SI joint, start find it at the bottom and then go up. Because a lot of times if you get a lot of rotation, that top part of the SI joint becomes obscured and you can't see it. But the bottom part always stays open where you can visualize it. So if you find the bottom of the SI, then you can go up and find the top. Otherwise, you might get it in the wrong spot. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the importance of those lines uh, just can't be overstated uh, because it's going to give us, um, you know, our, our eventual listing for that, for that anomaly. Uh, so we need to make sure those lines are drawn correctly. The dots are placed on there correctly, so the lines can be uh, correctly drawn on the films. Yeah, and as a as a Gonstead person drawing lines for years and years and years, I've always started at the bottom and gone up, and I think that's very much how we usually do it. At school, however, we started going from the top down, and the reason why is kind of odd, but the reason why is because we found that a lot of students, when they're learning this the first time, they struggle the most with properly marking the upper cervicals. Hmm. Um, and so we, by having them at the end of the quarter, they were often missing the chance to get that part right. And so instead what we do is we start at the top and we give them more time to get the upper cervicals right. Then we have the midterm. And in the second half of the class, we focused almost entirely on the pelvis. So the pelvis and the upper cervical seem to be the two sticky spots that people screw up. So that's just ended up being how it's done. And at first it kind of gave me whiplash because I'm like, why are we doing the uppers? I don't know what the bottom looks like. Uh, but that's, that's kind of how it landed. So you kind of by convention. But truthfully, if I have an x-ray and I'm going to look at it, I, I think there is importance from a patient perspective. If you have a real true patient, you're not just practicing this in a classroom, but you have a real patient, that there's an importance to doing the pelvis first and really knowing what is your foundation because it gives you the proper interpretation of what you're finding up at the top to know if you have compensation or if you have misalignment. So can you talk a little bit about that and why we start at the bottom and, and the importance of getting a good understanding of what's happening in the pelvis before you move up? Yeah, well, um, uh, one of the things I emphasize when we're doing that line analysis, so I can say this first, um, is that um, I, I always tell the students and doctors present that if they're, or as we analyze the, um, the uh, pelvis and then the upper cervical, um, try to block out in your mind or even put a book over uh, the other lines that we've already drawn on the film so that they don't interfere with uh, the lines like on the atlas and occiput and axis that we draw. Um, because there, there are quite a few lines that are especially in that upper cervical area that overlap one another. And so if you can just in your mind's eye or, or like say, put a book over the lines that we've finished analyzing, and then that makes the lines that we're currently working on much easier to figure out where they go and, and, and what they mean. 
And the same thing really goes for the pelvis. I always explain that, look, all these lines, we've got 18 dots and then all these lines associated with those dots. But all we're, all those dots and lines are doing is helping us to measure the width of the innominates and the sacrum and uh, the sacral center line and the vertical heights of the ilia. Um, so try not to get bogged down in, in uh, the number of lines that we have, uh, that we have to draw on the films. Um, but yeah, we, we always start with the, with the pelvis when we analyze. Um, actually, on the, we, uh, Gunstead always taught us to go to the lateral film first to analyze that. And uh, so really the, the first thing we do when we uh, analyze a film is just really to step back and take a look at uh, just kind of a gross evaluation of what the spine looks like and primarily what, what's happened with the uh, primary and secondary curves in the spine. And uh, we can tell just by looking at the uh, lumbar lordosis, if it's hyperkyphotic, uh, then we know that the primary subluxation in the uh, ilium is likely, not always, but likely going to be a PI EX or PI EX ilium. Um, we also know that sometimes a, a base posterior sacrum is going to cause a hyperlordosis. So those would be the two things that we would either eliminate or include in our, in our eventual analysis and determination of which uh, pelvic bone we're going to list. Uh, it isn't always, we don't always adjust that uh, ilium on the side of fifth lumbar uh, rotation. Uh, Gunstead said 65% of the time it will be the primary subluxation, but that leaves 35 people out of 100 uh, where <laughs> the site of body rotation is not the primary ilium. So that's a lot of people. So uh, look at the lateral, look at the lateral first, and uh, determine um, what's going on with with those lateral curves. We might look for you know, just general things like fractures, compression fractures, um, you know, degenerative changes along the spine, um, things like that that'll kind of give us an overall uh, look at, at uh, uh, or idea of what condition the patient's spine is in. And so since, since the Gunstead work is a foundational uh, technique, uh, that's why uh, one of the main reasons why we start uh, at the uh, lumbar area on the lateral and work up to the upper cervical. And then on the A to P, we start with the pelvis and again, work up to the upper cervical uh, analysis. So uh, once we have um, looked at that fifth lumbar, uh, we determine whether that L5-S1 disc is, is normal. And uh, Gunstead defined a normal disc as one that is fairly parallel, but one that's slightly open to the anterior. And so any other condition of that fifth lumbar uh, disc um, necessitates a listing. Uh, most of the time it's gonna be a posterior fifth lumbar, but if the disc is parallel or wide to the posterior, then it would be a base posterior listing. Uh, but far and away, the majority of fifth lumbar listings are, are just that. Their fifth lumbar has gone posterior and inferior to one degree or another. So that's our first, our first thing we have to do is 
determine whether fifth lumbar needs to be listed. If, if, if not, if it's normal, then we look at the fourth lumbar disc. And uh, if it's normal, then we look at three. Uh, but probably the majority of time, fifth lumbar is going to be wedged to one degree or another. And uh, therefore, it deserves the, um, to be the first uh, lumbar that we list. Um, so after that, we look at uh, to decide whether we have any other lumbars that need to be listed. And um, uh, we use George's line to uh, help us there. Um, so we can, uh, we can draw a line along the posterior bodies of the vertebra and see if any of those uh, inferior corners of the uh, vertebral bodies are posterior to the vertebra below. And probably one of the best things we do when, in using that George's line is to determine whether we have any stacking uh, in that lumbar area. Uh, so very typically, we'll, if we were to draw a dot on the posterior corners of the vertebral body, um, from T12 down to, let's say, T or L3, um, and then connect as many of those dots from T12 downward as we can, uh, we typically find that L2 or L3 is also posterior. And um, uh, so we know that uh, because uh, if, if we draw that line, and here's where looking at a real x-ray on, on this uh, podcast would help. But if we, if we drew that line along the posterior border of the vertebral bodies, we would see that it, it's, it's going to intersect there probably at the L2 or L3 level. It'll intersect into the body. And uh, so that tells us that the vertebra above that is the one that's uh, posterior, and that's where the stacking starts. So we may have three or four vertebrae in a row that are stacked, where that line is right straight down the, the uh, posterior borders of the body. Um, and so that's, uh, that's the indicator that tells us which other lumbar vertebra may be involved along with the fifth lumbar. I have a little bit of a technique question here to go with that, because um, I, when you have, say you're adjusting an L5, so I'll give you two scenarios, both are adjusting L5 but one has a hypolordosis and one has a hyperlordosis. And those adjustments are quite different. They feel very different, but I've always had a hard time articulating how they're different. <laughs> and how would you say that they're different when you're adjusting that L5 on the hypo, like say both side posture, but adjusting uh, with a push move, the hypolordotic spine with an L5 versus the hyperlordotic spine with an L5? Um, well, I guess the, um, uh, the difference that I would think of would be uh, with a hypolordotic uh, lumbar spine. Um, there's a lot more resistance uh, to yeah. the uh, what I would call the pumping or the inward uh, motion uh, that we get during the setup just prior to to the adjustment, because the curve is either straight or reversed when you have a hypolordosis. And uh, with the hyperlordosis, there's much more curvature, so there's more give um, to the tissues during your setup. Um, but uh, really, when you when you have those situations present, it, uh, initially, it, um, unless the fifth lumbar is what's causing the primary complaint, initially the 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 
bone that we need to really concentrate on is the pelvic bone that's causing the loss of curvature or the hyperlordosis. So loss of curvature we know is either due to an AS, an IN, ASIN, rotated sacrum, or severely rotated fifth lumbar. Uh, those are the five main things that cause a, a lumbar uh, uh, curvature to be lost. Uh, or I guess I can add in there severe inferiority, posterior inferiority of the fifth lumbar as well. Uh, but on the other hand, a hyperlordosis, as I mentioned earlier, is either due to a PI and EX, a PIEX, or a base posterior sacrum. So um, in order for that fifth lumbar to stay, uh, we have to correct the sacroiliac problem. Um, or if it's a sacrum or fifth lumbar involved, it's, that's actually causing that loss of curvature. Um, and that way, once, once we fix the ilium, then the, the fifth lumbar adjustments are gonna stay much better. So uh, a lot of times we'll have a patient though who comes in with a, a um, hypolordosis, but we find that the fifth lumbar is the primary cause of the immediate pain that they're in. And so we can go ahead and adjust that fifth lumbar to try to provide them some, some relief. But uh, I always have the conversation with them that until we get the pelvis fixed, uh, then the fifth lumbar is always gonna, going to return and uh, never stay as stable as what we can eventually get it. Yeah, because I think a common, I see this all the time, is that you look at the lateral film, you see the posterior and 40 of L5, and the assumption is then made that I need to do an L5 and the L5 is the problem. And not only could it potentially not be the problem, but you're right, even if it is the problem, you may need to get something stabilized underneath it in the pelvis that's pulling that back. And I think people often fail to recognize the number of misalignments in the pelvis that will lead to a posterior inferior fifth lumbar and the appearance on film. And yet that's not necessarily a problem, which takes us away from x-ray and back into palpation and scoping. And are you getting nerve pressure there or are you just getting an x-ray finding and knowing the difference? Yeah, just uh, um, about an hour ago, I was before we got online here, I was looking at uh, a, uh, one of Gunstead's videos on x-ray and the doctor was uh, had an x-ray up in front of the class and Dr. Gunstead was reviewing it. And uh, the, the patient had a, a hyperlordosis and the, the fourth and fifth lumbar disc and L3 as a matter of fact, were all really wide to the to the anterior, uh, just really large anterior openings. And then L23 uh, disc was uh, uh, degenerated, a lot of hibernation on the end plates. And then the L1 disc, L12 disc, was open to the posterior. Mm. And so, um, you know, Gunstead says, well, the problem is not, and the, the case history was, was such that the lady was complaining of severe spasm in the upper lumbar area and had been to several chiropractors and had not had any relief. And so Gunston says, well, uh, the problem's not in the lumbar spine. He says it's in the pelvis. So it's that PIEX. And it was a, a PI2EX10. And uh, so that big EX uh, was causing the hyperlordosis and the lumbar spine was trying to compensate by opening those discs uh, extremely wide to the anterior. And then the compensatory area 
uh, at L1 caused the disc to open posterior or to the posterior. And so the rule there for, from Gunstead is that uh, whenever we have a, a disc that's wide to the posterior in the lumbar spine, uh, you go, you adjust the vertebra below it. So in this case, it would have been L2 because the L1 disc was, was wide to the posterior. But on top of all that, he said, now, doctor, he said, no, he said, no, you fix that PIEX ilium, but don't adjust that L2 uh, until you've given her a month of rest in between. He said, because the, the lumbar, or excuse me, the, yeah, the lumbar adjustment at L2 could potentially make the ilium problem bad again and would take much longer to fix it. So yeah, I like that because um, we, we often say, we all know the guys that saying that we adjust too often, but yeah. a whole month is more than most people would think to give. So that's yeah. really great. I think in terms of a whole month to let that thing heal before you go after that L2. Yeah. 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 He, he frequently said that too, especially, especially related to sympathetic parasympathetic problems. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Uh, well, I, you bring up another interesting point because when you're talking about rotation, especially like an EX ilium, um, I've noticed this on, on film, maybe, I don't know, I have this idea, but when you think about the lumbars, uh, L5 only rotates about five degrees and an L1 and L2 only rotate about two degrees. So if your L5 is your primary subluxation and even if it has a lot of rotation, it won't have more than five degrees. So when it comes to compensation, L1 and L2 can add together for four degrees, and that can pretty much compensate. Whereas if you have an EX ilium that's got 10 millimeters of misalignment and it's flared way out there, it's going to take all the lumbar to compensate for it. And so when you tend to see lots of lots of lumbar compensating, and there's a big old curve because they have to have coupled motion in order to make that rotation, so they make this bending too. When you've got the whole lumbar involved, that's probably indicative of a, of a pelvis rotation. Whereas an L5 rotation won't require nearly so much out of the spine to compensate for it. So I think that's important to distinguish between. It gives clues. Yep. Yep. Um, <clears throat> there's so many clues. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's so many clues that we can find on a film. Um, especially, uh, I, I, I don't really care for the digital films. Uh, uh, it's a it's a teasing point between me and, and my students. Uh, you know, they say, oh, "Doc, you're just old old school," and I say, "No, it's not old school. It's, it's that there's so much more information on an analog film. You know, I mean, you can you can lift the film up a, away from the view box, and you know, uh, <laughs> I always kind of joke with them. I say, you can look up the patient's skirt, you know, and <laughs> turn it." Look at it sideways, you know, and you want to look around the bone uh, to see what's going on there. And, then, and you just can't do that digitally. Yeah, the very first time I got a digital film, um, it was on the computer. And my first instinct was, oh, I hate this. But then I started moving my head and I was leaning way over to the side. My staff were like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm trying to see around the corner, but it's not working. And that's what I told them. I was like, you don't understand. I can see around the corner on film. And I can't do that on a computer screen, and it drives me nuts. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I'm just an old soul. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, as we move up the spine, uh, analyzing on the lateral, um, 
uh, most of your viewers probably have heard of or know Dr. Rick Burns. And uh, he, he made a, a slide presentation called it 10 Indicators of Posteriority. And uh, we can use this, these indicators throughout the spine, but uh, it was primarily directed at the lump, or excuse me, the thoracic area. Um, and uh, so he, he talked about um, all visible posteriority, um, encroachment into the uh, intervertebral foramina. Uh, he talked about having uh, uh, stacking that we talked about in the lumbars and that hourglassing that we see on the end plates of the uh, vertebrate times with scoliosis involved. Um, he talked about an increased disc angle. Uh, this is a big one for the um, uh, middle and upper thoracic area for our analysis. Um, <clears throat> he talked about thin disc, spurring disc, uh, hibernation. Uh, he talked about uh, uh, Schmorl's nodes and stair-stepping. And uh, so these 10 indicators can help us to pinpoint which vertebra are potentially the, the cause of the problem. And uh, then we can confirm that once we go to the A to P and do our line analysis uh, on the A to P film. So, so those are very helpful tips. Most of the time when you see uh, things like spurring or hibernation or um, uh, uh, that, those degenerative changes that you'll see on a film uh, or stacking or stair-stepping, you, you just go down to the bottom one. Where does it start? You might have two or three in a row. Sometimes you'll have five, six, seven things in a row like that, uh, uh, spurring or stair-stepping, whatever, stacking. And you, you just go to the bottom one and determine which one starts it. And that's usually the subluxation. So then we go about having to confirm it with the rest of our analysis, of course. Um, but, but that's how those 10 indicators of posteriority help us in the thoracic area uh, to determine our, our um, potential subluxations. Because we, we all know the discs in the thoracics are much smaller than and more parallel in, than they are in the lumbars or, or even in the cervicals. So these are some good helps um, that we have to, to uh, determining from our lateral view uh, what the potential uh, listings are. To really find the, uh, the indications of subluxation of thoracics, I think is much harder than the cervicals and the lumbar. They seem right. to oh, yeah. The thoracic can be really tricky. And a lot of people take it for granted because they think, oh, the thoracics are so easy to adjust. Yeah. Well, only if you're on the right one. <laughs> and having <laughs> a right one, they're so hard to get on the x-ray and know that you've got the right one. So right. those are very helpful tips for being able to hunt that out. And I, the other one is I think that, um, as you were saying, when you have multiple stair-stepping, in the extreme example, it's when a patient comes in, they've got multiple levels of disc herniation. And they tell you, I've got an MRI, it shows disc herniation, L1, L2, L3, L4. And in my mm -hmm. head, I just immediately think, look look down, just keep going down. Um, That's right. Something underneath it, it might even be a rotated pelvis causing that. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, the uh, I think I mentioned there when I was going over the list of 10, the um, uh, severe angle. Uh, that we find a lot of times uh, in that mid upper thoracic region, typically in the T oh, four, five, six area, where we see the the uh, uh, thoracic discs start to open up at the posterior, and uh, so you might have two, three in a row um, where where the disc spaces uh, are all open to that posterior, 
uh, but the rest of them are either parallel or slightly open to the anterior. And so why are those two or three or four in a row there all open? And if you if you were to draw that George's line, that curved thoracic, um, thoracic kyphosis line along the posterior borders of the, of the vertebral bodies, um, you would see that there's a sudden change in the in the fluidity of that curve, and then it'll suddenly jer uh, jet forward instead of continuing a, a, a normal progression of the of the kyphosis there. And so that's a that's a big red flag saying look at me, uh, I'm the potential subluxation here, so, so which one am I? And so in the, uh, Gonsted gave us a rule there in the, in the thoracics, uh, whenever we have a disc that's wide to the posterior in the thoracic spine, uh, you, you uh, adjust the vertebra above it. Whereas in the cervicals and lumbars, I mentioned, you, uh, whenever we have a disc that's open to the posterior, we adjust the vertebra below it and that's just because of the of the difference between the lordotic and the kyphotic curve so in the thoracics we like I said we might have two or three uh open discs to the posterior uh, all in a row so you, again you just go down to the bottom one that's open and then adjust the bone below that and uh, usually that'll that'll help with not only the the correction of the subluxation but it also helps with the uh, either the loss of curvature in the neck or the hyper uh, lordosis that may be caused by a mid upper mid thoracic uh, subluxation. So it's a very important um, indicator. Here's a, I'm trying to make up another scenario off the top of my head. So with another scenario, if we have like a, a T4, T5, T6 that are all open to the posterior, then mm -hmm. you've got a T7 that's kind of posterior. I mean, uh, uh, open in the <laughs> uh, open in the anterior, so it's yeah, posterior. Yep. And then we go up above, and we find that maybe we have a listing in a posteriority at say C seven. Um, my two questions are: What would you most likely think is is the guilty culprit in that? But my part two is: What is the likelihood that you would adjust that C seven anytime soon? Mm. Um. Well, it, it depends. They, they both may have a, a, a subluxation reading on the, on the instrument. Um, some of the determination of what, what gets adjusted, at least on the first visit or two, is the primary, uh, the location of the primary complaint. Uh, so if, if they were complaining of a lot of uh, upper thoracic or mid thoracic pain, then and not a lot of cervical pain, then I would probably go to the that that uh, T5 or 6 and adjust in that area first on, on the first few visits, or at least on the first, and then determine from uh, the next visit whether they they had progressed somewhat. Um, and then that would, that would support the um, uh, decision to go ahead and adjust that area again. Uh, but eventually, uh, if we continue to see that reading at C7, we've got to go up and adjust that. Um, but we, we can't be in a hurry to do that. Uh, it's just like the example we talked about, the pelvis and the lumbar earlier. Uh, we, we have to give the, uh, the body a chance to compensate for the correction that we introduce into the spine. And so um, uh, don't be in a hurry the, the, the body the body tends to heal much faster if we 
if we do less to it. Um, and so by adjusting only one vertebra, um, I found, especially on the first few visits, the, the patients are going to respond much quicker. Um, and then if there's secondary complaints that are tied in with the primary, then, then we can go ahead and add that in, um, you know, at a later fourth, fifth, sixth visit if, if uh, we need to at that point. But just try not to be in, in such a hurry. Um, uh, we should definitely see if we're getting good uh, open soccer type adjustments where we're getting that vertebra P to A, I to S set onto the disc, then uh, we're going to see dramatic changes in just one or two adjustments. And um, um, when we see that, we need to start thinking about seeing the patient less, not, not more. Um, we can't be ruled by what we might have initially thought the patient needed three adjustments per week for a month. Uh, we can't be ruled by that predetermination prior to the beginning of treatment um, uh, to, to prevent us from <laughs> uh, decreasing the frequency that that, that that patient needs to be seen on. You know, they say in war, um, uh, all the plans change after the first shot goes off. And uh, so we can apply that to uh, our adjusting as well. Once we've adjusted our patient, then uh, everything can change. It doesn't always, but all of our preconceptions can change from that point. And uh, so we have to be willing to accept those changes when we, when we uh, uh, see that indication occurring on the next visit. Yeah, and I, well, and the reason I use that scenario is because I've seen it so many times with students that it's, it's okay to handle the idea of there being one subluxation and I find it and I fix it, but we start throwing in multiples all of a sudden, they kind of have this breakdown. They're like, I don't know what to do. It goes into panic mode. Do I adjust them both simultaneously? <laughs> like, you'll start coming up with crazy ideas of what they need to do because it kind of causes a breakdown. It's like, can you handle seeing that, yes, I'm accepting that there's a subluxation there, but I'm also okay with the idea that I'm not going to adjust it. I'm going to let it be, and I'm going to fix this other thing first, and I'm going to create some stability under it so that when I do adjust it, the body can actually hold it. And ultimately, that's what a lot of us are chasing after anyway, is the idea of getting adjustment, getting it to hold, getting the patient better, and they stay better, rather than right. seeing them constantly over and over, and things are in and things are out. Right. Yeah, another thing we can look at there, like if we had a, a T6 that was a PRS, um, you know, if the body's compensating correctly, as we look at the rotation of the vertebra above, we, we should start to see... Uh, rotation toward the left uh, above that that mid thoracic, and uh, so if everything just keeps going toward the right, all the rotation is still to the right as we get up to that secondary C7 problem that you mentioned. Then that's another indicator that that um, the vertebra are not able to compensate there and and go back toward the left to compensate for the right rotation in the T6. I uh, hope that's not too complicated, but um, uh, that, that's how we can look at the x-ray and, and help us to determine uh, what may be potential compensations and, and what are indeed different subluxations that need to be addressed. Yeah, I think that's a good point that um, we probably should talk about because we tend to think of 
compensation as though somehow it's equal from patient to patient. And yet there are some patients are great compensators, almost too great. They compensate so well, we can't find the subluxation. And then there's other ones that don't compensate at all. The subluxation is easy to find on our end, but they're in extreme agony because their body can do nothing to balance them back out. So how do we, how do we deal with that issue of great compensators versus terrible compensators and, and how big the range is in the middle between those two extremes? Uh, well, the only thing I could say to that, uh, David, would be uh, that we just have to, you know, figure out uh, which is the primary subluxation. And if we get that, then the compensations, whether they're overcompensating, hypercompensating or hypermobile or whether they're, they're not, all that stuff is going to start to uh, neutralize when we get the primary subluxation corrected. Yeah, there's a, an element that happens, but I don't know, you've done this long enough, maybe you don't remember the point at which things started to change for you, because I know it happens fairly early on, where you start to develop such an eye for x-rays and what things should do and where you expect them to go, that when you're looking at an x-ray and you're seeing, oh, it should be going this way, but oh, it goes that way, when it didn't go this way, that you immediately start having a red flag that starts to ask why, where's this coming from, and starts investigating where in the early days, like say when you're still a student, you don't know where anything's supposed to go. So you look at an x-ray and go, ah, it's an x-ray. You don't really know how to, how to interpret what you're seeing. And so um, I think that there's that element too, that to some degree, we can't even verbalize what we're seeing. We just have seen enough x-rays that we know where, that, where a spine should go if it's going to compensate properly. And we then know when it's not compensating properly. And I do take mental note of, is this person a good compensator or a bad compensator? Because that lets me know that when they come in and they're in extreme pain and they're a poor compensator, I know why they're in so much pain. It's not because the subluxation is so bad necessarily or these other things. It's because they don't have the ability to compensate for it versus mm -hmm. the person that when you tell them, does this hurt? And they're like, no, it feels fine. Well, they might just be an awesome compensator. And you just mm -hmm. talked yourself out of adjusting the subluxation, which is mm -hmm. another trap. So um, that whole compensation thing is <laughs> like, it's like the nemesis of the chiropractor. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, I kind of alluded to it earlier that, um, uh, the the person that's a hyper uh, has a hyperlordosis, um, they're they're usually compensating pretty well. But the person that's lost the curvatures, uh, they're almost always the ones that are in the most pain, and have the most systems involved, um, uh, parasympathetic or, or uh, sympathetic, and um, so they they typically take a longer time to uh, to correct. Um, you know, to get to that point where they're where they're really feeling a lot better. Um, whereas I think more of the people that are hyperlordotic, uh, they don't struggle quite as much, uh, probably because of the reasons you mentioned there. Yeah. How often does an x-ray give you an idea of when you're going to tell a patient how long you expect to, it, it to take to correct this? How often do you get that information from the x-ray versus some other method? Oh, quite a bit <laughs> from the x-ray. Uh, the x-ray, uh, it, it just gives us so much information about the, the patient. It's our blueprint yeah. for that for that patient. And they're all different. And, um, you know, so we look at a, at a lateral film and, and uh, you know, we look at, at uh, uh, disc degeneration, what, what stage of degeneration the disc is in, you know, how thin or thick the disc is. 
And that, that alone tells us uh, the approximate length of time that a patient has had that disc problem. So they say, oh, no, I, I, I just heard it two weeks ago, and um, it's been bothering me ever since. And then you say, well, when was the last time you had this? Oh, it was about a year ago. And how about the time before that? Oh, it was about another year before that. And and you know, you and you say, well, uh, can you think of a of a a problem? You know, they have a D three or D four disc, and I say, can you think of an injury that you might have had? Uh, oh, maybe uh, six to twelve years ago, which is the time span that it usually takes for a disc to get to a D three or D four disc, and and uh, uh, tell me if, if you remember any injury that you had uh, in that time span um, uh, at work or maybe a car accident or anything like that. Oh, yeah, I fell off the roof when, when I was a roofer, you know, back 12 years ago. And, you know, so you, you can really paint the picture for them with their own comments. Um, and, and anyway, that, that kind of stuff tells us um, what it's going to take to correct uh, that particular patient's problem, and indeed whether we can get the spine back to normal. You know, discs are uh, discs are hard cartilage. It takes a hacksaw to cut through a disc. So subluxations don't flitter and flutter around the spine. You know, it isn't this vertebra one day and this one and that one and this one the next. Subluxations uh, occur from uh, damage to the disc material and the the shifting of the um, uh, nucleic material in there. Uh, and the longer it's in that position, the thinner that disc gets. And the more permanent uh, the condition is that the patient will have. So it doesn't mean that we can't get them out of their symptom that, that's brought them into the office, but it does have a lot to do with whether or not the patient's going to hold their adjustments and potentially how long. Uh, everybody's different in that regard. You know, you might have a patient with a D5 disc and you adjust them four or five times, get them out of pain, they don't come back for five years and they haven't had any pain in between. But you get another patient with the same D5 disc and they're at your door every every two, two to four weeks uh, because the pain recurs. So we never know what patient is going to be you know, what type of, uh, have to have that type of recurrence um, of the symptom. But generally speaking, it, it gives us an idea, a little insight into, into how, how much corrective care, if they're interested in getting connect, corrective care. Symptomatic care, if, if a patient just has pain, I, I'm really looking for uh, five to six visits and probably most of their pain is gone. Um, and uh, you know another few visits to make sure it's it's staying stable and then they're gone. Um, but if you have a patient that comes in with uh, not only pain but they have um, uh, ex uh, pain down radiating down into the extremity uh, along with numbness, then this patient has gone the the, the full gamut of of uh, symptoms and wear and tear and degeneration. And so. Like I said, pain uh, and other symptoms like that are, are going to go away fairly quickly within the first couple of weeks. Um, but um, uh, traveling pain, radicular pain, is going to take 
some time for the nerves to start to heal at the vertebral level, at the disc level, and then down into the extremity uh, if they have had the, the problem for a number of years. Uh, and then you add to that the, the final symptom that occurs in numbness where we're getting atrophy of the nerve and the tissues involved with that nerve. And so now we have to, now we have to give the patient time for not only the nerve to heal, but the tissue that it supplies to, to uh, start to return to normal. So you have that variety of patients and their extensive, extent of their um, condition, their symptoms uh, that are gonna help us to determine how much care they need. But then, you know, all of a sudden, <laughs> some patients, uh, they have all those symptoms and uh, five visits later, they're completely pain-free, no numbness, you know, that, so, you know, what's uh, Gunstead's famous quote? Uh, the second sentence is, accept it where you find it. Well, we have to accept that, that maybe in these cases we're wrong uh, with how much case, uh, care that they thought that they were going to need. And, and so be it. Um, and if they're not interested in ongoing corrective care, um, support care, then, then okay, I, you know, uh, come back when it hurts again. Um, and refer any friends that you find in the meantime that have, you know, some problem like yours. But yeah, that's right. And, 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 you know, and then, uh, Dave, you're breaking up. I can't make out what you're saying. Sorry. The same way that people compensate differently, oh, yeah. they also heal differently. So some people are just amazing healers, and some people have a very low capacity for healing. That's, that's right. That's right. And then, you know, sometimes it just goes to the other end of the scale where you're going to get somebody that's, you know, this is the first time they've ever had the problem. And, and um, uh, you know, instead of taking uh, two weeks to get completely over it, they're they're still coming into your office uh, two months down the road with uh, some of the, you know, some of the pain that's still lingering. Uh, so we just never know for sure, but we have a general idea, consensus of what it's going to take to to fix a problem. And, and I just always tell the patient, look, it might might take a little more, a little less. Uh, we'll we'll adapt to what you need as we go through your care. Um, I don't want to be rigid about it. Well, and I love the fact that you're talking about the, the degeneration levels so much because I think a lot of times those get neglected and people fail to realize just how much information that gives you. Like you said, that if it's a D6 disc, that's not going to fix the same way a D1 is. It's not going to fix the same way a D3 is. And so right. knowing the difference between them lets you know what to expect. Um, but also they don't adjust the same either. They feel totally different when you adjust them. And even your approach to it is a little bit different um, in how you adjust them. So there's so much information we get from the different levels of degeneration. Uh, but as we continue to move up the spine, the other thing that I really want to talk about is the atlas because it gets so much attention just in all of chiropractic. We've got so many upper cervical only techniques that exist in chiropractic and our approach is we still revere the atlas and we still adjust atlas and we still do all these things with atlas, but we don't put it on a pedestal to the neglect of everything else. And so right. you talk a little bit about the atlas and what a Gonsta doctor's approach to an atlas again we're going to see a lot of misalignment on an x-ray that may not be subluxation because it's a great place to compensate. And so how do we distinguish between when the atlas is misaligned and compensating versus when it's misaligned and subluxated and knowing the difference? Right. Yeah. Um, 
and I don't I don't want your viewers to um, um, lose the capacity to breathe when I say this. Um, <clears throat> but um, when I said this at, at Sherman, the first time I did a seminar at Sherman, uh, I, uh, I had, had a question about the Atlas. And I said, well, I said, Dr. Gonstead said that uh, the Atlas was a problem in only 10% of his patients. <laughs> you know, and all, all the air got sucked out of the room uh, from all the gasping that was going on. <laughs> So, you know, and I, over the years, I've found that to be very accurate um, in the percentage. Uh, and uh, when, when adjusting the atlas, it doesn't, take, it doesn't take a lot of adjustments to get the atlas to, to stay in alignment or occiput, uh, unless it's been really traumatically injured in like in a car accident or, you know, they fell on their head or had a 100-pound bag of cement fall on them or, you know, something like that. But most of the time, the atlas doesn't take but a few adjustments to get it corrected and to, and to keep it in place. And I think the primary reason for that is that I may be wrong, but I, I think the primary reason is because we don't have a disc at those levels. They're caps or ligaments. And so we don't get the permanency of the degeneration uh, that we get on the degeneration of a disc in, from C2 to L5. And so most of the time, um, these atlas occiput adjustments, um, like I say, they, they, they're only required a, a few times, two, three times maybe, uh, to get those to stay for most patients. Um, so, so, mu so much, uh, you, you mentioned in, in your comments about this, that so much compensation occurs uh, by the time we get to the cervical spine, especially in the upper cervical spine, uh, that Gunstead said, uh, never take your your uh, upper cervical listing from the x-ray. You always do it from your palpation. Um, so we still we still do the line analysis uh, because we're we're able to see things as we do that analysis that are important to our understanding of that what's going on at that articulation. but but the determination, uh, if we have an instrument reading there indicating that we have a subluxation, then the determination for the listing is from palpation. You know, and hopefully it agrees with the x-ray, but very likely or very commonly it's not going to just because of all the compensation that occurs um, by the time you get to that upper cervical area. Um, and then, we, you know, when we look at the when we look at our lateral cervical analysis lines, um, we draw those lines uh, on the inferior end plate of each vertebra from T1 up to C2 and extend those lines all the way back to the edge of the film. And when we look at those lines um, and we see that they're either parallel or, or diverging to the posterior, like we talked about in the lumbar spine or even in the thoracic area, when we see those lines diverging to the posterior with discs that are open to the posterior, that's a big red flag that that's a compensatory area and that we should leave that area alone. And so very commonly that compensation is occurring, those open diverging lines to the posterior are occurring C2, 3, 4, 5 area. And uh, so that, again, that tells us to leave that area alone 
and look for the problem below. Uh, you know, if you just think about it, the, the cervical spine is supposed to have a lordosis in it. And so uh, it, when we draw these lines on it, should they be diverging to the posterior or should they be converging to the posterior? Okay, and so it should, it should be the latter. And so uh, when we look at those analysis lines, we, we look for the line that crosses closest to the spine and which is most typically down C5, C6, or C7, um, because all the lines above are typically parallel or open to the posterior because of the loss of curvature. And so we have to fix that problem in the lower neck, and that relieves a lot of stress on the upper cervical area. It, it's not, when you're palpating, it's not uncommon. Uh, if you lateral flex a patient, and uh, uh, you have your finger and thumb on either side of the patient's neck and you lateral flex them and you, you might find, uh, you know, very little give opening and closing of those transverse processes uh, as you lateral flex uh, toward and away from the side you're feeling for. And you might find that from C6 all the way up uh, to the uh, axis. And it, almost without exception, uh, if you adjust the vertebra at the base of that, the C6 or C7, all of that uh, restricted mobility, that fixation from C5 all the way up to C2 will go away immediately after the adjustment. And um, so that's very, very commonly, you know, in, if you think about that from a diversified perspective, a diversified doctor would get in there and adjust every one of those vertebrae from the right side and then from the left when those are all just compensations. And uh, so from our, our Gonstead analysis, we understand that there's usually one bone that's causing all of that. And so we go down to the bottom um, to, to, to find the, the subluxation, the true subluxation, not just the fixations. We're not adjusting fixations although all subluxations are fixated. Um, but we don't just adjust all fixations because a lot of compensations become fixated, but they're not subluxated. They don't have a nerve reading. Uh, they don't have the inflammatory reaction going on there. They're just fixated, they're stuck, or in some cases they're hypermobile. So we have to get to the bottom of the problem. What's that again, Dave? If that subluxation is it, if that subluxation is at T1, um, it's going to be well hidden because T1 doesn't move as much as C7 because it's got ribs. And when you take a lateral film, a lot of people blur out their T1 and they don't get a good view of it, so you can't see the posteriority there. So yep. that's the problem I always have is when you've got that kind of duct tailing in the mid cervicals, you've got a really screwed up atlas because it's trying to balance the head, and the real subluxation is hidden at T1. In that yeah. scenario, it is so easy for people to miss it and not even know it's there because their palpation's yeah. deceiving them and their scope might even be deceiving them if they're not tilting correctly and their x-ray's deceiving them because the area's blurred out and that thing just stays hidden even though they're using multiple things. And I think that that's one of the hardest things to find in chiropractic yeah. is that T1 that's screwing up the neck because yeah. everything lies to you. Yeah, a lot of times it's even down to T2 or 3. Yes. And so one of the things that we can do there is just uh, look at our uh, A to P film. And if we were to draw vertical lines on the lateral borders of the, on the A to P film on those vertebrae, then uh, typically we'll see 
let's say we'd have uh, uh, T3, 4, and 5, if we do these lines on the lateral borders, that they would all be parallel, uh, they would be parallel on both the right and left side. But then at T2, we'd see uh, if we drew those lines that there would be a, a curve starts there. In other words, the disc at T, T2, 3 would, would have uh, subluxated and, and we'd see a wedge on it, like, let's say it would be a PRS. And so we'd see a wedge suddenly form there and be, it would no longer be parallel with the uh, third, fourth, and fifth vertebra below it. And so that can be a, when you can't see the lateral row well, we can go to that A to P and oftentimes pick out that T1 or T2 or 3 where there's a sudden sudden curvature, a sudden wedging of the disc there that occurs. And uh, uh, those will typically affect that lumbar uh, lordosis and make it straighter. Yeah, I have one more question for you, and I'm going to deviate a little bit away from x-ray, but I think you'll remember this. So I wrote a thing a while back about a patient of mine, and um, I'll give the details in case you want to read it, but it was a patient of mine who 50 years prior, he's in his 80s now, so 50 years, 50 or 60 years, probably 60 years prior, um, when he fought in the Vietnam War, he ejected through the canopy, and then because he ejected through the canopy, it tilted his chair face up, and then the vertical stabilizer hit him in the head a second time, and he was super stunned. So this happened in his 20s. I'm seeing him in his 80s, and the problem I was having is when I scoped him, I was getting a huge reading at T12, and what was odd about it is his pain that he was getting was not going horizontally like a dermatome. It was translating vertically up and down the spine, and it took me the longest time to figure out that I was actually probably getting a vagus um, at reaction. And so then I went up and looked at his atlas, and no matter how many times we tried adjusting his T12, it made very little difference. The first time I adjusted his atlas, I went to the grocery store sometime after that, and he texted me, and he said, hey, my neck feels great, but here's the funny thing. My T12 doesn't hurt anymore. Um, and then you emailed me, and you said that what you found was a version of cord pressure. And so that's the thing I'd like to talk about a little bit, because we hardly ever talk about cord pressure. So I know there's a lot of people out there who know that cord pressure exists, but they don't know it when they see I mean, obviously, I didn't know it when I saw it. <laughs> so they don't always know it when they see it, um, and they don't always know what to do with it. Um, but how does the atlas create cord pressure, and how is that a unique finding? To, and, and if it does show up on x-ray, how would it show up on x-ray? Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, just a little background. Uh, uh, Dr. Gunstead first really talked about cord pressure during a seminar. Um, it was probably in 1977. Um, you know, every seminar we would have discussions on symptom vertebral correlations. And one of the common ones that came up was Bell's palsy. And so, you know, we, we'd all heard Doc's answer to that. And, and so we kind of, uh, you know, zoned out a little bit, <laughs> you know, I have Bell's palsy on the left. It's an ASLP. If it's on the right, it's an ASRP. And uh, so we went on to the next question. And then all of a sudden, this guy that asked the question, he says, oh, wait a minute, doc. He says, I thought you told us earlier that uh, subluxations of the atlas cause muscle spasm. He says, yes, that's right. He said, well, how come uh, an atlas causes paralysis of the muscle in Bell's palsy? He says, oh, just nonchalantly, he says, oh, that's a cord pressure. And those of us that have been in quite a few seminars looked at each other and we, we said, excuse me, we said, 
what the hell's a cord pressure, Doc? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so that's what led to him coming up with a, a chart that, that he had drawn about cord pressure. Wasn't that he was becoming an upper cervical doctor in the, in the twilight of his years. He was just trying to explain what a cord pressure was. And so cord pressures primarily occur at the atlas. He said 80% atlas, uh, 12% axis, and 8% occiput. And uh, they're primarily due to rotation of the atlas, uh, severe rotation of the atlas, sometimes due to just straight laterality. Um, but in a nutshell, um, he said that the anterior part of the cord would produce sympathetic symptoms. The posterior half of the cord would produce parasympathetic system, symptoms. And he gave us the Gray's Anatomy uh, edition 29, uh, where he found this drawing um, uh, back in 1977. And so uh, knowing that the anterior part of the cord is, is sympathetic and the posterior part of the cord is parasympathetic, then we can understand how a posterior rotation of the atlas on the left um, would cause the anterior part of the ring in certain patients to hit the anterior part of the cord. So the internal part of the ring rotates posterior as does the transverse process, but the interior part of the ring hits the cord, which is sympathetic. And so this, if, if it's um, a Bell's palsy, this is how a posterior rotated atlas can cause a paralysis uh, by this cord pressure. Um, so it, uh, it explained a lot of what uh, is discussed in upper cervical circles about how the atlas uh, controls all, all of these different problems that patients have, whether they're sympathetic or parasympathetic or neuromuscular or musculoskeletal, I should say. Um, uh, so, uh, like if we're thinking of a, a case with, I remember Doug, uh, Doug Cox one time when I, when I took his uh, setting on his class uh, during one of the seminars, he talked about the, uh, a lady that had um, migraine headaches that was corrected by a fifth cervical adjustment. Well, that's a, that's a parasympathetic uh, vertebra, okay? Parasympathetic part of the nervous system. And Doc always said that migraines are almost exclusively due to, to um, uh, a, a sympathetic problem uh, with the thyroid, C6 to T3 or 4, maybe the adrenals or suprarenals, T8 to T12, and maybe the, the ovaries, uh, uh, L2 or 3. And so when we have, when we have a, a cord pressure that's hitting that anterior part of the cord, that's how we get sympathetic symptoms from a, what we usually consider as a parasympathetic vertebra. Okay? And so then just the vice versa occurs when we have an anterior rotation, the internal ring of the atlas at the posterior of the atlas ring 
uh, rotates forward and hits the posterior part of the cord. Uh, and that produces parasympathetic symptoms, much like we would see if it was hitting the vagus. So that, that part's yeah. not really con conflicting as far as our mindset on, on how we understand sympathetic and parasympathetic. Uh, but in a nutshell, that, that's, that's what the cord pressure is about. Um, uh, Doc talked about the um, vasomotor phenomenon with a, with a cord pressure in, in that you'd see, like you mentioned, you'd see a 15-point reading at the atlas, and then not a lot of activity down until you got to T12. And on some patients all the way down to S2, you'd see that big 15-point reading again. And so that was how he originally described the, the cord pressure reading on the instrument. Uh, over the years, though, I, I, I've, I've only seen that kind of a reading maybe two or three times in, in, in my practice. But I've seen a lot of symptomatic situations where I believe it was a cord pressure involved. It just didn't show up on the instrument uh, as the, quote, um, motor phenomenon. And Doc, Doc talked about that in the chapters. He, you know, he, you know, those chapters were written back in the late 60s, early 70s. And, and so he already had all that understood in his own mind, but he never talked about it until the 1977 was the first time we ever heard him talk anything about it. I know so, we talk about a lot of the meat of the minds, and it seems like that keeps coming up more and more and, and trying to get a better understanding of of yeah. how do this, because especially like that parasympathetic one. So if you've got the, uh, say, an ASLA, well, is your problem caused because it's hitting the vagus, or is it because the posterior arch internal ring is hitting the spinal cord? Well, it's right. a good bet at both. <laughs> so, yeah, it could be. Yeah, <laughs> and it could be, and then what difference does it make? It's going to be adjusted as a, you know, ASLA anyway. So uh, it doesn't make really that much difference whether it is a cord pressure or not. It just helps us in our understanding. Um, yeah, it's almost more on the diagnostic side to try to make sense out of what am I seeing right. and can I fully attribute that to an atlas and I just need to fix the atlas. Right. Yeah. You know, we have to really keep, keep in mind that the vagus nerve is – uh, I mean, there's very little distance from the anterior uh, transverse area of the atlas uh, to that <laughs> contact in that vagus nerve, and so you you know you add uh, you add inflammation and swelling that can occur as well, and and uh, so th that vagus nerve can certainly be affected uh, very easily with a with an anterior rotation. I, I've got a a a, a um, little video clip. Uh, from a medical journal uh, on that rotation of the atlas. And it, I mean, it's right there. Uh, that vagus nerve is right there and uh, is easily offended by the uh, rotation of the atlas. Um, yeah. It's just not the cause of all all of our health complaints. It, right. Like I say, I, I agree with Doc, 10% of the time is probably a pretty good percentage uh, of involvement of the atlas. Um, and uh, we, we just need to look lower down and get the structural problem corrected. And then a lot of that compensatory stuff that's going on at the upper cervical level will clear out on its own. 
Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This has been awesome. I think we got into some good deep topics, and you're the guy I always know I can ask if you'll have an answer. <laughs> and you'll call Dr. Gosta, which makes it even better. Uh, yeah. Well, I've enjoyed it very much myself. I I sat down yesterday and wrote out a bunch of notes, and we, we've covered most of the things I, I'd written down. So um, that's good. We, we talked about a lot of good topics and a lot of stuff that just isn't understood uh, that we need the x-ray for. It's not just a such as to see if the, you know, what the listing is. Uh, there's a lot of it. There's a hundred questions go through my mind when I analyze an x-ray. And um, we talk about that in my seminars that uh, as we go through all the, all the slides on, on the x-ray interpretation. So study the x-ray, analyze as many of them as you can. Um, they, the um, volume of information that you're going to get from them over time is tremendous. So, yes. study them. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to seeing you next weekend. <laughs> oh, yeah. See you, see you at Extravaganza. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, we'll see you then. Thank you. All right. You bet. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Wood for joining me today. I trust that you learned something from that conversation, as I know I did. If you've never been to one of Dr. Wood's seminars, I would highly recommend them. He teaches them at Life University, among other places, and I try to drop in whenever I can. If you're a young practitioner or a student, there's a tremendous amount of information that you can get from his seminars, and he teaches them all over the world. This past week, I was on an email chain with Kristen Fellows, Josh Lawler, David Geary, and Denny O'Hara. It started with Kristen Fellows asking a question. We all gave our input, but these answers led to more questions. I then took the opportunity to ask some questions of my own and get their feedback. Then it occurred to me that even though we don't talk often, and the five of us are in three different states, this is such a great way to make connections with people who are on your level, bounce ideas off of each other, work through your thoughts and gain clarity, and basically grow together. We all have people who are near us, especially if you're a student. But if you can find people on your level who are more spread out and form a group to ask questions and bounce ideas, I would highly recommend that as well. I want to mention this because this next weekend is the Gonset Extravaganza, which means we'll be gathering with people from all over the country. This is a perfect opportunity to make friends in different places and form groups together to create a different aspect to your learning. Don't just limit your world to those who are close. Well, I hope you learned something today. And as always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.